and during some of the toughest times, I have a little piece of paper in my wallet that I keep all the time, even to this moment, uh, of different things that I that mean to me, different sayings that mean a lot to me, uh, things that I strive for, recognizing my responsibility to give back. Reoccurring mantra I got into in college where I would just say, I'm going to break the mold. Two days after my second injury, my dad flew out to Indiana and we drove home. Went right up to my room, slept for a day, and then I woke up the next morning, I spray-painted my wall. No quitting me. I remember, you know, there is no quitting me and I won't, you know, I won't give up. The number one thing you gotta remember is your transferring energy. And whatever energy you got is the energy the viewers are going to have. You are listening to Intentional Performers with Brian Levinson, where we talk with experts of craft about their journey and what they have intentionally done to be their best self. As we talk with them, the hope is that we uncover intentional gems that you can use in your life now. Let's kick it over to Brian to introduce this week's guest. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to another episode of the Intentional Performers Podcast. I am Brian Levinson. Excited to have you with us for another great episode today. I am so excited for today's guest. Uh, But before we get to him, I want to give you a little introduction to myself. So I work as an executive coach and a mental performance coach, where I get to work with people in the corporate world who are trying to learn, grow, develop themselves, and people in the sports world who are doing the same. And so organizations and individuals hire me to help them unlock their potential or see new possibilities that they didn't know existed before we started working together. And as part of my work, I run a cohort of 10 executives where I coach them for six months uh, and then it culminates in them coming together for a day-long retreat where those 10 executives can connect with each other. So I'm running my third cohort. It'll start in January uh, and we have a few spots left. So if you are an executive in a leadership position and are looking to develop yourself and are obsessed with growing and want to continue that growth and continue to unlock new possibilities and see how you can perform better, uh, reach out to me. Get in touch with me. I'm on Twitter at Brian Levinson. You can email me, brian at blevinson.com. Always looking to connect with lifelong learners who are interested in improving and growing and developing themselves and serving others as well. Also, I just want to give a shout out to all of you for being here, for listening, for continuing to support me and the work that I'm doing and our team here at the Intentional Performers Podcast. It means the world to me. So thanks for being here. Thanks for listening. Thanks for giving your time, which is your most precious asset. Uh, And just want to say that I appreciate each and every one of you. Now to today's guest, who is somebody who I am so appreciative to connect with. He's somebody who I found on social media and was just blown away by him. His energy, his intensity, his enthusiasm, his intentionality around everything that he does. This guy speaks intentional performance, lives intentional performance. Uh, Hamish Brewer is a principal and is somebody who is relentless. He's tattooed. He's a skateboarding principal. He goes through the hallways at the school that he's the principal at skateboarding. Uh, He's a high octane, constantly calling on his students to be relentless. And you'll hear the word relentless throughout our conversation today. And he's become known as an educational disruptor. He definitely challenges the status quo and is constantly looking to 
innovate and change how the world is operating and just trying to serve his students and make them better at whatever they want to become in this world. And you're going to find out real quick that Hamish is just different. He does things differently. Uh, he's known for working with some of the most at-risk students in America, and he flat out gets results. So he's not just some mushy guy. He's real. He's authentic. He's genuine. You, what you see with Hamish is what you get, and you're going to learn real quick that he really cares about culture. He cares about vocabulary. He's won all kinds of awards. He's nationally recognized as a principal. He's written a best-selling book. He's done a TED Talk. This guy is just somebody who is living, breathing, and doing things to try to make this world a better place. And once again, I'm just very grateful that he's somebody who gave me an hour of his time to unpack what he's learned about himself, what he's learned about teaching and educating and inspiring. And he also is an incredible speaker. So check him out. He's at HamishBrewer.com. We're going to talk about his social media platforms as well. But Hamish is somebody who you're going to love learning his story, his journey. And without further ado, I'm so excited to present to you Hamish Brewer. Hamish, so excited to have you on the podcast. I was telling you before we started recording, I first learned about you. There was a video that got promoted on social media about this principal skateboarding through the hallways of his school. And all I could think about was, man, my... My principals were not doing that when I was in elementary school, middle school, or high school. They were all good people with good intentions, but you bring in an enthusiasm and an energy for education and for kids and for life that I think we don't often see in the school. And as we're recording this, people won't see our video. They'll just hear our voices, but there's spray paint in the background. Uh, there's, you're wearing a flat brim baseball cap with your school's logo on it. And so I think you're different and different for me is exciting and cool. And uh, people that I get on this podcast, I'm always looking for people that are doing things a little differently and challenging the status quo. And where I thought we could start is wh where do you get that enthusiasm and energy from? Can you trace back where that comes from for you? Because it's so apparent within 30 seconds of talking to you. Yeah, man. First, first of all, super, uh, super excited and fired up that we finally connected. I know we've talked about doing this for a while now and uh, super excited about the work you're doing. And uh, yeah, you know, for me, my energy and excitement comes from a number of places, you know, uh, I want to live life with passion and purpose and I don't want to waste a minute. You know, I've had a lot of experiences in life that knocks you down and you got two choices, right? You get back up and go again or you stay down. And um, when you're experiencing life to the full, um, you definitely have that passion and that perseverance and the things I've been through growing up and the, my journey to where, how I got here today, it's a little unconventional, but it's also helped me um, be successful in the work that I want to do, you know, and a lot of the way, a lot of the time too, man, when you get the opportunity to completely change the outcome of communities and schools and kids' futures, you know, there's nothing more amazing and powerful than that opportunity. And I don't take it for granted. I'm humbled by it every day. And I just want to do more. I want to do more of it. And I'm passionate and excited about it. And if you're going to go do something, why not make it count, right? You talked about your upbringing. Give us some insight. What was life like for you as a kid? Yeah, you know, I used to think the way I grew up was pretty normal. You know, I thought everything was pretty normal around me until I started realizing just little things like maybe not having as many friends over for for activities and things like that. And, and then I started to realize that it, stuff wasn't normal. You know, I grew up around a lot of poverty and I grew up um, around my, my mother uh, left us 
um, and grew up with my dad around too much alcohol and domestic violence and some things like that. And then, you know, I failed high school. I failed my high school exams a couple of times and really struggled to find that spark academically. I wasn't engaged in my, really engaged in my academic process as I should have been. Uh, I used to like going to school and I played sports and sports was my safe haven, my savior. And there was nothing greater than that. But uh, it took me a long time to click academically and I struggled and I think that's part of my passion for in the schools I work in today is that you know I experienced so many of the same trials and tribulations in life that many of our kids go through that I see every day kids that live in a lot of poverty and, and at risk and things like that and to kind of know that journey and be in that journey myself you know it helps me connect a little bit more too. Do you have siblings? Yeah I have two younger brothers um I don't think really any of us made it out of high school, but we've all been pretty, pretty successful because uh, we're relationship people. Uh, we care about people. Uh, we work hard to put others first. You know, I tell people all the time, the greatest gift is the opportunity to give, right? That the legacy, the impact that you get to have on the world around you, that that's game changer. And I think that's what we've done well as a family. And, and uh, we stayed whole uh, through each other's unity through that kind of work. Why do you think you, you and your brothers were able to achieve what you've achieved? I, I think we've had to persevere. I, th I think we've had to be resilient. I think we've persevered through some really difficult uh, times and uh, worked hard through those things. And when you come out the other end, you're, you, you have a, you're a little bit more savvy in a different way, a little bit more life-skilled in a certain way. Um, and you learn a lot of empathy for others. And... Uh, you just grow up pretty humbled by what life has to give in front of you, you know? So I think those things are important. Um, we had lots of good people that were good influences, influences on us along the way too, that, that helped us along. But, um, you know, I full credit to my dad, you know, he stuck with us and helped us through a lot of hard times. And, 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 you know, we learned from him, you know, he always wanted better for us and we worked hard along those lines. Are you in touch with mom after she yeah, left? Yeah, yeah. You know what? We're back in touch. Um, life's too short to hold grudges. Life's too short to live in the past too far. I think you, I think you learned that um, every second counts. I was in a fire truck accident uh, a few years ago. And I remember uh, the one thing I remember from the accident, we were responding to a 911 call. And um, I remember from the accident just, it's great light and your body does crazy things when you're in trauma. And I just remember being asked the question, are you ready to go yet? And I said, no, I'm not ready to go yet. And I woke up being medevac to the DC hospital area. Um, and later on in that journey, having six pins in my back. And I just remember, you know, you get these second chances at life, you get these opportunities in life to make a difference. You know, I've since gone on to have children and, you know, I want my kids to know their grandparents, you know, and I think that builds a bridge too. I think those things help us build bridges um, and mend wounds and, and help, um, you know, if you live, if you live in that place of hate and, and, and that kind of thing, nothing good lives here. Nothing good lives in negativity. And I'm really a firm believer that uh, living life with positivity, working in positivity, surrounding yourself with the people that make you better, lift you up. Um, those things are, are, are really important. And you have an accent. So talk about where you grew up, what it was like. You gave us an idea of, you know, some, yeah. some poverty, yeah. but yeah. Uh, yeah. paint that picture for us. Yeah, man. I, I grew up in Fredericksburg, Virginia. Just joking. 
Uh, the accent is from. It's exactly for those that don't know Fredericksburg, Virginia. It sounds exactly like Hamish. He is yeah, right. A hundred percent representative of that. Yeah, right. No, I grew up in New Zealand. I grew up in Auckland, New Zealand. Spent a lot of time going between a couple of cities, Auckland and Wellington. I grew up in a really pretty part of Auckland. Um, you know, poverty looks different in different places too. You know. Um, but it doesn't discriminate. It doesn't discriminate against your zip code and those things. But I um, grew up in a, in a place called West Auckland. Um, it was, it was green close to, it was, it was a urban part of the city, you know, um, just out of the main city center, you know, in those days, 20 minutes from anywhere, you know, like 20 minutes from downtown DC is like four hours. But um, in Auckland growing up is 20 minutes from nowhere. I went to all boys Catholic school. Went to an all boys Catholic school growing up and, um, you know, just had, just had a good time. You know, you grew up playing rugby in New Zealand, cricket, all those sorts of things. You know, being a, being a fan of rugby, you know, I think that's why I'm such a big Ravens fan. You know, we like to tackle and play defense. So, you know, I quickly gravitated to the Ravens, you know, they're known for their defense. But, uh, you know, I grew up with um, lots of opportunity to experience life. Uh, you grow around, grow up around the outdoors, uh, grow around the beaches, uh, uh, hiking, things like that, and and what have you. But I can't complain about many of the experiences I live as a Kiwi growing up. You know, your mindset is to travel. You know, you're isolated down that end of the world. All you can think about is uh, traveling. And I used to um, keep a map on my wall and put pins in it of all the different places in the world that I'd one day travel and make up different journeys along the way, daydreaming about the opportunities the world had in front of me. And I think that's what helped keep me straight a little bit was thinking about those opportunities to travel and see the world and knock things off the bucket list, you know, and, and live it to the fullest. You meet Aussies and you meet Kiwis and there's absolutely this, and I know they're not the same and there's a rivalry there, but there is an element of journey and travel of living for the moment yeah. that, that you run into. My wife and I, we did our honeymoon in Australia and we went over to New Zealand, the North Island. So we actually spent time in Auckland as well. And for those that don't realize New Zealand is a, it's, it, I mean, first of all, it's, it's absolutely gorgeous, but it's also like very small. I mean, what, 4 million yeah. people in New Zealand yeah, 4 million I mean, people. Yeah. Like, and, and so it, it's hard to, remember that when you're in a place like the u.s is as far as the size of it and the population i'm curious for you when you're in virginia and you're working with people are you bringing that imagination and that journeyman mindset to them and these are people that might not ever get outside of their community in virginia are you yeah sort of inspiring them to go see the world in their own way yeah, 100%. I think, um, I don't think that ever comes out of you when you grow up that way. I think it's just inherently part of who you are. It's your makeup. It's what you are. I remember when I first came to Virginia and uh, we'd be sit, I'd be sitting around school, the firehouse, and everybody would be asking you questions about your journeys, you know, and what I took for granted, uh, traveling the world, coming out of Southeast Asia and places like this, people are like, you went where? Like, what? You mean you left your city? Like, I, I mean, I grew up um, here recently in the Stafford County area and in the firehouse that the saying was, once you come to Stafford, you're not leaving Stafford. And so, so somewhat true to this day, thankfully I got a lot of my traveling out of the way, but they was always enamored by these trips and my adventures and listening to the different stories and, and, and things I used to get up to along these journeys. But, you know, I think it's a central part of my um, being and my schools, you know, I think the world looks like that today and our schools have to look like this today. You know, like we, we don't live in the square box anymore, you know, and 
kids today have instant access to the world around them and you can be anywhere in the world in 24 hours and education needs to start looking like that. And so, so draw it back to your question, you know, I'm, 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 I'm thankful that we make global, the globalization of education, internationalization of, of education, a huge part of the work we do and, and that skill set of being able to communicate and collaborate across cultures and borders and time zones it's essential you know and uh so yeah it's very much a centerpiece of the work we do and you mentioned catholic school did you have a religious framework that you were growing up with uh, and what do you think about religion as an adult and as you stand here today yeah you know i just uh you know in schools you know it's state versus the religion you know it's separated that kind of stuff um i went to an all boys school it worked perfect for me at the time you know, I, um, we, I didn't really go to church during that time. Uh, went to church or school all the time. It was a very big part of what we did at, at school. But um, today, you know, I, I come and go from that side of things. Um, you know, I did so much of it growing up through the school setting and things like that. But uh, yeah, man, I, I'm, I'm, I'm neither really here nor there. I try to live in the moment, you know. Um, it's kind of where I am on that. And walk me through how you end up going from dropping out in high school to working in the school system as a principal. Yeah. That, that to me, as part of your story, uh, it, I often, when I do these conversations with people, they'll tell me, yeah, my parents really emphasize education. So I did well academically. And then I went to college and then I did it. it, 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 it. And your story is like, wait a second, hold on. He dropped out of high school and now he's a principal, and now his whole life is education. Right. So connect those dots for me. Yeah, yeah, I, yeah. I'm, I'm curious about Yeah, it. let's take us through that journey. So, um, you know, I didn't really have anybody telling me, hey, we're going to college. There was nobody saying we're going to do college visits. And, and, you know, New Zealand was a little bit smaller too, so it wasn't really a thing on the radar for a lot of kids growing up at my time. But um, when I, I failed my a couple of years at school, I had to repeat repeat the exam years and things like that. And it started getting down to the point where it was like, hey, what are you going to do in life, right? Like, what are you going to do? So I was out there trying a few things. We'd have these like career weeks. You go try something for a few days. So I thought, you know what? I'll go try tourism. Tourism was big in New Zealand. So I thought, you know what? I could go to all these exotic locations. After trying it out, I realized I'd be sitting behind a desk pushing computers. So that wasn't going to work. And then I was like, well, how about I try becoming a builder? So I tried like a little few days of being a builder and working for a builder. Guy said to me, dig a ditch over here, middle of summer, dry as could be. Do you think I moved an ounce of that dirt? Hell no, I didn't move a piece of that thing. He comes out and said, where's my ditch? And I said, you dig the ditch. He tried to dig it and then fired me on the spot. Needless to say, building was not going to be in my, um, in my repertoire. But I joke at the time. I wanted, it was right around when Top Gun first came out. Who didn't love Top Gun, right? So I was going to be Maverick, you know, like fly fi jet fighter planes. Well, we didn't have jet fighter planes in New Zealand, so that really wasn't going to work. And again, I was kind of told I wasn't quite academic enough. Now, here's where the story gets fun. The um, effects machine was sitting in the counselor's office at the time. Lady was waiting, guidance counselor, career counselor type thing, was waiting on effects. Facts comes through. It was an application to teacher's college. I'm like... Well, how about I try that? And the guidance counselor at the time says, because she's like, you know, you can't stay at school forever. Now, how little did she know I wasn't ever leaving school? But the facts come through. I say, I'm going to try that. And she's, well, maybe not academic enough for the university side of the work. And I'm like, you know what? I'm done. I'm applying to this thing. I'm going to try it out. Because you know what I thought? Teachers get summer vacation, baby. 
So all I'm thinking about is vacation and summer's off. I'm not thinking about behavior management, instruction, curriculum, and planning, right? So I, I apply for it and I get an interview. Go to the interview and then I get a letter back. Lo and behold, dude, I'm selected to teacher's college. And so I'm exiting school halfway through the year and like a, it's almost like the, a, the equivalent of uh, coming back to a second semester after Christmas here in the States. So I, I enter halfway through the year and I backed all my way into college. Funniest thing that happens next, I fail my first semester at college. I'm like, oh boy, we're in trouble. And a couple of things happened and, and, and a couple of professors saw the diamond in the rough, took me aside and, and got me back on track. And I'll be, I'm, I'm really happy to say I never failed a class again. I'm the first in my family to go to college, first in my family to get a master's. And hopefully in the next six months or so, the first in my family to finish a doctor of education at Virginia Tech. So how about that? Good for you, man. It's, it's a really cool story. And I'm just wondering, what would you have been like if you had gone to a school where you were the principal? Oh, dude, I probably would have been way more connected. Uh, you know, you live back in those days and it was so more... It was so more rigid, so more um, confined. So, so the, it was like the box and a big narrow tunnel, you know, and I just, I was a daydreamer. I was always dreaming about something bigger and better. And I wonder sometimes if I was just really actually quite bored and not identified as being more on the ball than what they saw in me, you know what I mean? And they didn't see, they didn't see what I had that would help me go forward. And so that's why I'm, I, I always talk about my kids today. Every kid's gifted. I, I believe every single kid's gifted. And it's my responsibility to help bring that giftedness out in them, to find the things that makes them tick for them to be the best version of themselves. And I, I don't necessarily think that came easy um, in terms of identifying me. And I, you know, I didn't necessarily give them, give them a lot of opportunity to figure that out either. But at the same time, our offerings today and schools today are amazing. The opportunities and offerings and, and, and those things are in school just blow my mind what they have. The smorgasbord, smorgasbord of opportunity for kids today, even if they go career technical, even if they go community college or full college or whatever, you know, we live in an entrepreneurial world. Now, kids are entrepreneurs today and, and education is reflecting and more and more of that. And if I'd had that back then, like, I think I would have had a whole lot more success, I think. You sound optimistic about the future of education and where we're going. As you sit back and if you close your eyes and sort of took us 15 years from now, where, where do you see education going? What, what changes do you see? That well, you know, you know I, I, I rock back and forth on that because I think um, today more than ever, we have an epidemic in education. Uh, I think we're struggling to give a reason why for young people to jump into our vocation and we have to change that. We have to be the ambassadors for education that it deserves. Um, we have to start looking at ways to make the conditions better for our educators, paying them more, um, lifting them up, putting them on a higher pedestal for the work they do. You know, it's hard work, the work that we do each and every day. But, but that being said, what's in front of us in education is exciting if we take the bulls by the horn and, and really run with it because you know, we're, we're hopefully shifting away from this era of the past where we looked at at, at, at testing and, and, and rows and, and textbooks and all this other stuff to a more personalized version of what education looks like, a more individualized, personalized experience for kids to 
truly interact with their curriculum rather than get their curriculum. So instead of kids just getting facts and, and receiving facts and receiving knowledge, it's not about the facts and knowledge. It's now going to be about what do we do with that knowledge? What do we do with that skill set? and the application of it and what that looks like for our kids today. We're trying to do that right here now in my current school. That's, that's what we want it to look like right now. Like we moved away from like the traditional setting of rows to, I have, I have round tables in every class that have whiteboard tabletops. Our kids are communicating and collaborating all day long in this, in this setting that's it's authentic, it's relevant, it's real. It's what their world looks like that they're going into, you know? It's awesome. I, I get excited hearing you. I've got two small kids and um, there's a lot of discussion about education to your point. There's, there's one part of this world where it's saying, well, it actually doesn't matter. You can go on Google and find everything you want. And I'm like, okay, maybe, but most, most kids are not going to take that path. They need guidance. They need uh, parameters. They need structures. They yep. need structure. Um, so I'm like, I think education is the future. You mentioned poverty earlier. To me, like the way you come out of poverty is through education. And I was actually curious about that word poverty because it's a big word and you, you use it, it sounds like very intentionally. When you think of poverty, what do you think of? Like what, how do you capture what it means to have, to be yeah. in poverty? You know, it looks different than it's ever looked before. You know, like I think back in our day growing up, you know, poverty was more an economic thing, an income type thing. Um, I think today poverty looks uh, even more different. You know, like kids are coming to school facing more and more trauma than ever before. You know, we've never needed our guidance counselors and counselors and psychologists more than ever before. Kids are Kids are struggling with what that looks like. Family units have changed. Um, living conditions have changed. Um, kids, kids are seeing and are more aware. You know, technology has its power and it has its great and it has its great side and it has another side, right? Like I think with the advent and and the exponential uh, growth in technology and the access has changed our kids' upbringing, the development of our kids the things they're exposed to, their knowledge base, what they see, hear, learn, all those things have changed. The way they communicate and interact with each other, um, that looks different again. Um, so I, I, I look at poverty in a much broader broader sense of just dollars and cents. Um, and and it, means, it means so much more. It means at risk and, and like I say, trauma and, and things like that as well. So it's definitely changed. Oh man. So I, I love where you're going with this. Cause this is something that I think often about, which is mental health and also a big broad word. And one of the concerns that I have, I work a lot on college campuses with student athletes. And one of the concerns that I have is this idea, and I'm probably not going to articulate this in a politically correct manner. So if you're listening to this, just stick with us as we tease this out. But I hear so many college kids now who are aware that they need help and they're saying i need help and then the college campuses are struggling to provide enough counselors to provide them with help so we have more and more kids that are raising their hands and saying i have some sort of mental health problem and so we've turned up the volume on the mental health awareness yet to your point the numbers as far as suicide depression like we're also seeing some spikes there mm -hmm. and and so like, I, I'm hopeful that as we're turning up the volume on it, we're going to go through this 
painful experience because more and more awareness is going to occur. And then through that pain, we'll come up with better solutions. But I'm not sure we're there yet as far as how are we helping these people when they are raising their hands and saying they need help. And this is the, the really tricky part where I said, you know, politically correct. I, I don't know how to say this other than there's a difference between being sad and being depressed. There's a difference between being nervous and having an anxiety disorder and coming up with a better solution for teasing that out so that everyone feels heard and we get the people that truly need help, the help that they need while still empowering people to look within to um, create solutions as well. I hope I'm just curious. Yeah. Yeah. I think, I think what's happened is been really awesome and, and the school division I work in, we've done a really intentional job of creating voice for kids that have trauma or voice for kids that are in trouble. Like I think more so than ever before, like it was a silent conversation many years ago. Like I don't believe it was something that kids were allowed to openly talk about or they were like, ah, there's nothing wrong with you. Move on. You know, you're okay. Whereas I think we've learned to understand what those signs are. I think we know what they look like more and more today. And so as we've given uh, the appropriate voice for help and asking kids to cry out for help, we've realized that we need more and more resources to help kids. We need more and more resources to help folks that are struggling or know who to turn to. That being said, we've also got to provide those resources. We've got to fund those resources. I think, I think we live in a time where outside of education, funding for these sorts of things is hard to come by in some respect. We know it's there and we need to fight for these things more. Um, but I think to your point, like you said, we're going to be better at dealing with it. The more we we understand it, the more we understand what those indicators are, the more we understand what the signs are as we already are. Like I actually think there's never been a better time in terms of providing help and opportunity for for kids, students, adults that have that have these thoughts, it's one of the scariest things you can go through. I've I've been through a youth suicide scenario, and it's the hardest thing I ever led a community through. You know, and I wish it upon nobody. Um, but people need we need we need that help. We need those opportunities and those avenues and those lanes for kids and adults to know where to go and get that help from. And I think we've opened that up, which has also put another spotlight on how magnified and how big the issue can be and how big it has been. And we're really working hard to, to help kids facing trauma like that today. I really believe that. And then on the other side of the equation, so in our world, we talk about training the mental, the physical, the technical. So an athlete, you know, a basketball player can train their technique. They can train the physical, like strength the conditioning and then the mental. And so my work is really on that mental side and it's less about uh, mental health as it relates to psychological disorders and more about building resilience or confidence or focus and concentration. So I'm curious for you at your school. And those are things, by the way, that we all should be working on. And we all as human beings should be training ourselves mentally. I'm curious if you guys yeah. have ex- explored yeah. and what you've done. I'm right into that. Dude, I'm right into that. You're about to open up a whole thing for me. Look, man, um, I keep it really real for our students. Uh, I don't sugarcoat it for our students. Life is not giving kids a handout, so let's not pretend. It's not Curious George every week. You know what I'm saying? So we, I spent a lot of time starting with fundamental thought process around like legacy. What's the legacy you want to leave? What do you want to be remembered for when it's all said and done? 
What will someone say about you? I tell teachers all the time, if a student sees you coming down the hallway, are they running the other way? Or they really, they know that there's a teacher ready to stand up and fight for them today. If, if a teacher sees the principal coming, are they running the other way? Oh, here she comes. Look out. There we go. Or because that's legacy, right? And legacy will come knocking and in any situation, any different way. And I talk to the kids about that, like restorative practices around discipline and behavior and talking to kids about mistakes they've made and relating that to legacy and changing that mindset that they can be anything. But they have to own that. They have to own the outcome. They have to put the work in. and Because ain't nobody going to do it for them. They can't do this on their own. They can't do it by themselves. They have to do it, right? They have to do the work. And so we got sayings around the building like, one more round is a big one. I put a boxing ring up in the, I painted up a big mural boxing ring. It says one more round over it. And it's not about the fight in the boxing. It's about the fight for life. It's about fighting to stand up when you get knocked down again and again and again. We teach our kids to get back up again. That failing is also success because you're failing and learning and moving forward each and every time that you're getting better and you're learning from your mistakes and you get back down and you show uh, back up and you show perseverance and resilience when it gets tough. Like your schooling's going to be tough. We know we talk about chasing a hundred chasing. It's not about chasing perfection. It's about giving your best effort each and every day with your work because that will pay off in the long run. Um, so you're talking our language. You're talking my language. You're talking about that mental approach that I really attack in my school and spend hours and hours talking to kids about their character, their integrity, their legacy, and what they're going to stand for, because that's hours gained in the classroom for their academics. When they start changing that mindset and thinking about that stuff earlier and earlier all the time. So yeah, you get me fired up. Yeah. I love your, your you became animated and live and that uh, you could see it. What is the legacy that you want to leave? You know what, man, I, I, I thought about this and it evolves over time. You know what? Maturity gives us this. You know, it used to be for me, I'm going to chase championships. I want to win championships every single day, every single year, right? And now that I got a little bit older, I'm still nice and young looking. But um, what I'll tell you is this. I want to know that my kids, my students have gone on to be amazing mothers, amazing fathers, amazing productive citizens, that they live a life of giving, that they live a life of lifting others up. That's what I want to be measured by. You know, all too often we're measured by test scores. You know, test scores, that's great. That, that, that's just singular. It's in a moment. But that lifetime measurement, that legacy, that, that, that ability to be a great mother and father and to give back, you know, that's forever. That's forever. And so I want to be measured by that. I want to be measured by did I make an impact in my community? Did I change the outcome of the community? I didn't just sit on the sidelines. You know, I had one school where I turned that school around. We're one of the best schools in the nation. I could have sat there, could have milked it. But that's not legacy. That's not what it's about. When I look to my left and look to my right and I see someone else struggling, I can't stay and talk what I talk and preach what I preach if I don't go take care of that too. I want to be about the work. I want people to say, that dude stood up, put it on the line, took a shot at it, and did what he said he was going to do. I love it. There's two books that come to mind as I hear you talk. One is the book Legacy, which talks about the New Zealand All Blacks. James and, yeah, yeah, we're in touch. We're in touch. Oh, that book. Yeah, man, awesome. I'm a big fan of that. I actually get my teachers to read that. And uh, in my own book, Relentless, I touch on some of the same things. But uh, James Kerr's book's amazing. 
And then the other book is I'm hearing you talk is The Road to Character by David Brooks, where he talks about your eulogy versus your resume and how many of us are obsessed with our resume and just building your resume. And as I'm hearing you talk, it, it's not lost on me that you failed. Like you struggled yeah. in school. Your scores weren't up to speed. But look at the eulogy that you're leaving. Look at the legacy that you're leaving, the impact that you're having. And when you pass, whenever that is, like what you're going to be remembered for is not going to be, you know, the title that you have, but the people that you touch. And I think it's really, really cool. You, you use the word relentless and you use it over and over again. That's another interesting book by uh, Tim Grover. It's called yeah. Relentless. Yeah. Um, but, but why that word? It sounds like that word is an intentional word that you use. Yeah. Yeah. So, so, so two things, let me, let me come back to relentless and just, I want to touch on one thing to close out our last segment. You know, we live in a society that's more about likes and retweets and shares and we, that's a dangerous place, dangerous space for us to live. And if that's what you're going to count your legacy on, you know, it, 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 that it, it, it's only short term, you know, there's no sustainability in that. And it's the wrong, I'm missing the word I'm trying to tell you, but it's the wrong legacy. It's the wrong thing to be, to be chasing, right? Fulfillment, like, the, the wrong feel, thing to get fulfillment from. All, all that, right? But that's what the world was started to become a part of is how many likes and shares we can hey, get. Mish, let's stay on that, but we can come back to relentless. So, but you're somebody who I found because of those likes, because of those retweets and you know, I don't know how many million, <laughs> like 30 some million views right. um, of, of you right. going through your, right. so, so like, how do you make sense of that for yourself? Like, let's go to you. Yeah. Cause yeah. You're, a, you're a principal, but all of a sudden you've got some fame attached to yeah. your, your work. Um, whereas there are principals all over the world who Working are doing out. great work and doing awesome work, yeah, but, but you, you're, you're on this podcast and, and we were talking before, I'm probably gonna have another principal that I got connected to also on the podcast. So it's not that I think the world doesn't value your work, right. but the flip side of this is how, how do you handle the likes and their tweets and the retweets and this, that, and the other? Yeah, you know, you know what, dude, I've been very fortunate. Um, I think part of growing up the way I did, um, I realized that it's, flatter, it's fleeting. That's the word I've been looking for, fleeting. And it can disappear on me. I live in fear of failure. I live in fear of it all disappearing on me, being taken away. And I think part of that is a little bit of how I grew up too and, and, and always finding that that happened. But at the same time, man, I want to stay humble and hungry, man. I'm so hungry. I'm so hungry to change the outcome of kids. I'd give it all up today. Give it all up today to change the outcome of children. Like this stuff's not important to me. But, but the important thing to me is the opportunity to have a platform to change the conversation in education. Like that's what I'm excited about. That's like there's, there was a period where I was like 35 million views. Hey, look at me. And then you, then you, you, you start – if you're looking at it the right way, that ceases to become the value, that ceases to become the drive, and you start to understand this opportunity that you have to inspire and uplift others. And I think that's the greatest reward is that regardless of running into lots of people and they want you to take their photo with you and like, hey, can I, like yesterday, I'm in Target, I'm in the Target with my kids and somebody comes up to me and says, hey, can I get a photo with you? And I'm like, you know, I always say yes, because somewhere along the way, that yes is going to inspire and change the outcome for 10 other people. I never want to take that for granted, right? I never want to be the guy that is too cool for anybody, too cool for school, too cool to, you know, forget where you came from. And so um, 
I, I, I've been very fortunate, very humbled. The next Relentless, the third Relentless in the Doc series is coming out here uh, hopefully in about a month and it's going to be awesome. And that exposure, like you get on a plane and you see a drop down screen and your faces all the way along the plane and you start looking around, you're like, oh, okay, that's weird. But at the same time, the, the reality is I am so excited that I'm changing the opportunity for others. I'm give, through my work, I'm giving others the opportunity to have conversations that they haven't necessarily felt they've been able to have, able to have, had, or are doing. And so people all around the world are reaching out to me and, and thanking me for giving them the opportunity to change how they look at their work, their life, their kids, and the hard times that they're going through. I mean, um, and I try to reply to every single one, which keeps me up all through the night, but I don't ever want to I don't ever want to not be the opportunity for someone. Awesome. You mentioned fear of failure. So fear of failure is a double-edged sword because it can help us prepare. It can help us be relentless and continuing to go, but it also can paralyze us and get in the way of us achieving what we want to achieve. So how do you manage and how do you think about fear of failure? Yeah, man, I, I've come to realize I deal with a lot of anxiety. Uh, I have really bad anxiety attacks at times um, when things do get overwhelming and starting to learn to understand that better and, and the fear of failure. Um, you know, it's a fear of not wanting to let anybody down. It's a fear of making a mistake that will let someone down. Like for instance, we could be having this podcast right now and I'm like, I'll be up at three in the morning tomorrow thinking, okay, reliving, what did I say? All right. Did I say something that's going to upset or is it, did I wreck it? And then it's all going to disappear on me. Like I live in, fear of being one step away from somebody pulling the rug out from underneath me. It's a double-edged sword, but it's also the flip side of it's the part of the thing that makes me hungry, right? Makes me a fighter, makes me work even harder to not fail and to be that difference. So you're right there when you say it's that double-edged sword, it can be a really uh, paralyzing thing or it can be something that's really uplifting and it's uh, garnishing that power and harnessing that power to, to work for you, right? Yeah, I mean, some of the best athletes in the world talk about having a fear of failure. Michael Strahan, Serena Williams, Usain Bolt. And for me, when I think about those three athletes in particular, they're also fearless. And so for I have this framework that I use, which is your mindset for preparation should be different than your mindset for performance. So fear of failure and preparation, if we leverage it the right way, then it can actually give us the right to earn fearlessness and performance. Yes. And yeah. so Usain Bolt, because he's trained his ass off and has done all these different things, when he toes the line, that's why you see that fearless version of himself or Michael Strahan when he puts his hand on the dirt and is rushing the passer, Serena Williams getting a yeah. serve. Um, so how do you think about fearlessness on yeah. the other side of fear of failure? Yeah, and it also it almost helps you go into this zone, right? Like it's like when that whistle blows or the horn drops it. And it's game time. It's the same. It was the same thing on the fire trucks, you know, like this fear of failing or maybe dying on the job. But when the sirens go and the door opens, it's like all that, all that disappears. When I walk into a school, all that disappears for that moment. When I walk on stage, it's like, boom, it's game time and it disappears for me. But it's, it's that, it's that same fear that prepares me for where I am now. Like it's that, it's that preparation, that thought, that mental preparing, that mental journey, like you're envisioning it before it even happens. We've, we've talked a lot about the students, but I'm curious about the teachers because you're a leader of, you're a leader of teachers. And mm -hmm. I, I, I mean, I don't know how many staff you have that, that you're managing, that you're leading, um, but I would assume it's a lot. And so 
how do you bring out the best in them? Is it the same as the, as the students? Is it different? How do little you think bit. about it? Yeah, a little bit. Look, um, you know, in education, we talk, we talk a lot of the time about the leader needing to be an instructional leader. That, that's your core thing. I argue that's a secondary thing almost. That the most important thing that we sometimes do in our building is motivating the troops, motivating our staff. Because if the staff aren't motivated to get after it every day, then it doesn't matter what kind of instruction is happening. It'll be bad instruction. Great instruction comes from people that are, that are given the opportunity to engage in their most brilliant work. Look, when I first started out as a principal, I used to think I used to have all the answers. And I actually failed as a principal a little bit at the beginning because I had that mindset that I had to have all the perfect answers. When I realized the answers were around the room in us and it took all of us, I became successful when I empowered the people around me and I let go and I became a leader, not a manager, not a manager. I became a leader. That's when I really took off because I, I was able to motivate those troops, motivate the people around us to greatness, to be the best that they can be. My job is to strip away the barriers, take away all the hurdles. And this is in any industry as a leader. Your job is to take away the barriers and the hurdles that get in the way of great performance and education. We have the best at putting hurdles up in them. and the best at like like for instance i tell all the people all the time stop meeting like in education we're the worst at meeting we'll meet to have a meeting about the next meeting and the next meeting unless there's an actionable outcome with a direct impact on kids then why are we meeting tell me that right like let's not do it so people love getting behind me and doing and following me because I strip all that away so that they can be the most amazing version of themselves and do what they set out to be, to be an amazing teacher, right? And so that's a huge part, whether it be as you see the teachers come in for the day, whether it be you see them ending, whether it be in the corridors, hallways, in their classrooms, every moment of the day is to pick someone up, lift them up, inspire them and motivate them to do the work and to tie them to the why, right? They'll fight. If they don't know who you are or what you're about, they ain't going to fight for you. They need to fight for the why. They need to fight for what it is that we believe in and what we're chasing. Like I talk all the time, man, you can't serve someone you think you're better than. You cannot serve someone you think you're better than. There's motivation, intrinsic motivation right there. I love it. I love it. I'm fired up. I'm ready to go. But uh, well, another thing I was curious about is you put your office in the middle of the school. Why, why do you do that? Yeah, it's in the middle of the school, 100% on purpose, because the traditional model is the principal's in the back corner of the facility, back corner of the campus, a long, long way away and away from the action. Well, today, our kids, our schools are moving faster than a McDonald's. Like, we have to be front and center. You cannot be a silent observer in a school no more. By having it in the middle of the school, the kids know I'm here, they know I'm present, they know their business is my business, which is what it should be. They know that, that uh, I've created an environment, I've changed the office to be an environment that kids and teachers can come in and out and free flow. It's like Grand Central in here. Teachers and students come in and out of here all the time just to talk, just to relax, create a different atmosphere around what the school principalship looks like. Like I think today so many adults are scared to communicate in their schools today because the experiences they had back in the day weren't the experiences like we're offering now. And we have to rebuild that trust, that respect, that community, that partnership and the work that we do. When I put my, when I put my uh, office in the middle of this school and I spray painted the front of it and did it up real good, I stood behind the door on one of the first days of school, kids walked past and it sent a message. Cause you know what they said? Two little girls walked past, you know what they said? He's not leaving us. 
You know, when everybody else ran out of the fire, I ran in. I ran in. That's legacy. That's the work, right? There's something called self-determination theory, which uh, suggests that people perform at their best when they have relatedness. They're part of something bigger than themselves. They're competent. They know actually what they're doing. And they have autonomy, the freedom to make choices. And as I'm listening to you, it sounds like there is this element of relatedness. Like yep. you, you got the logo. This, this matters. Like you're part of this community. Um, there is autonomy, like the freedom to empower them, to have the whiteboard in front of them to, to create uh, and then this idea that, no, you, you have to learn, like you have to learn yep. the skills necessary. Yep. We're not just going to give it to you. You have to earn it yep. and know what you're doing. So it's cool to sort of see that framework come to life yep. with the work that you're doing. Yeah. You know, your school becomes the expectation and vocabulary you set for it. You know, I, I refer to my school as a fortress. Who talks about their school as a fortress? I do. You got something to say about my kids? You want to talk about my kids? Talk about my school? Then I'll fight you for my school. Like, that's how far I'm willing to go. Like how far are you willing to go to be the difference? Right. And so the, the other thing is, as you talk about that, you're right. You know, it's that, it's that believing in yourself and it's that uplifting and, 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 and people want to be a part of something special today. Adults in the world today, they just don't want to turn up and go to work anymore for the sake of going to work. I believe that people truly want to be a part of something special. And so I think that way when I'm hiring and I'm looking for people, that I provide that special opportunity. Like I'll tell you right now, I recruit like a college football coach. Like I'm telling you right now, I recruit like Alabama. I'm going to put my championship rings in front of you and say, mount up, let's go. You want to be a part of something special? Then let's roll. It's interesting because we've hit on the, the, the uh, teachers, we've hit on the students. And well, as I, my wife works in the school system and I've worked in high school sports. And the thing that you often hear from coaches and teachers is, oh, it's not the kids, uh, it's not the teachers, it's, it's the parents. And so I'd love to hear from you how you think about um, working with parents because they're a big part of this puzzle as well and a big yeah. piece. So how do you think about working with parents? Yeah, man, I've completely changed our thought process on what it means to work with parents. You know, I think that's a cop-out to blame parents. I think I've never met a parent that doesn't want to fight for their child. You know, tell me a parent that doesn't want to fight for their child. So I take that and just harness that, right? I take that and use that to grow our relationships. As I said before, I think that we've got a communication problem right now in education where parents are scared to talk to teachers and teachers are scared to talk to parents. And we have to reopen those lines of communication with one another. Um, we, have, we have to change the model of how we interact with our parents. For example, a couple of ways. First of all, the old PTA, PTO model, I think that's starting to become archaic. You know, it's not normal for everybody to be able to come to a PTA meeting at this time once a month anymore. And so much stuff is going on. So instead of asking parents to be in charge of stuff, we've gone the other way. We just said, we want you to participate. That's it. You just participate. That's all we're asking you to do. And completely transformed the parent. We get hundreds of parents turn out to our events. We pack the place. Don't tell the fire marshal, but we pack the place. And, and, and like, for instance, like, Tickets, gates at sporting events are huge in, in secondary settings, like middle school and high school. The football team plays, and then you take gates. You know what I did? We made everything free. We stopped taking gates. We said, come on, come on out and get involved. And instead of having empty stadiums, we have full stadiums. And we didn't lose money. We ended up making more money. You know why? Our, our parents and kids went to concessions, and we rolled in concessions. But what we created was a sense of community and belonging. We created an, an event. 
people would come uh, coming out to our to our games and to our, our our different events we have because it's an experience that they feel part of, that they feel ownership, that they feel the opportunity to participate. They want more of it, right? And so it changed like that whole people went away. Like I saturate our parent community in our swag. We have the best swag on the planet. Are you going to know that your kids go to my school? And half of it we give away for free because we want the whole community to be dominated by our, by our message, by our words, by our legacy and our expectation. And the parents just gravitate to that. And then we changed how we communicate. I haven't done a newsletter in years. Nobody would be reading a newsletter. And if you're at the middle school, guess where the newsletter is? It's sitting in the locker store. It ain't never come out of the locker. It made it to the locker and never made it home. So you know what I do? I take my cell phone. We send out email blasts. We send out text message blasts and phone call blasts. Like I get on the phone and I hit up my parents. What's up, Hornet Nation? It's your principal, Mr. Brew, your favorite principal, your only principal. And then I start... And, then, and just even them receiving my message becomes an event. And so you create this energy and excitement around your school. So you see in business and in schools and in schools, we're a little bit slow to, to, to come up on this, but you have to own the message, own the brand. If you let someone else tell your story, guess what? They're going to tell it for you. And they're not going to tell you the real story. They're going to tell the story they want to tell. So we get out in front of it and we own and tell our own story and we involve our parents we get our parents excited. They feel like they can come in and have any conversation. You know, you give a parent a call. Hey, man, I just want you on the loop. They're like, Mr. Bro, I appreciate that. Thank you. Whatever you need, I've got your back. I love it. Everything you're talking about is relevant to a business, to yep. a nonprofit, to a team. It's culture. And the way you build culture is through the vocabulary that you use and the way you communicate. And every organization has a culture. Some are good. Some are not so good. But it's all if you go into any organization, you'll notice that they speak a certain way. They talk a certain way. And two of the organizations that I've studied a lot over the years are the Seattle Seahawks and the San Antonio Spurs. And uh, two weeks ago, I had the pleasure of spending some time with the Spurs and the Spurs, everything that they do is around what they call a program. So they're an NBA team with grown men and they say our program at our program. Um, and communication is at the core of everything that they do yep. and how they talk. And if you listen to the Seahawks, they all talk about Pete Carroll, the head coach there who might have as much enthusiasm as you do. He's a little older. So uh, it's, it's really impressive, you know, program program at our program. We care about the whole person and we're going to develop the whole person and he's going to bring this enthusiasm for life. And he talks about a program. And so it's awesome how you have attached vocabulary and spray painted it. It's one thing that's cool. But the other thing is you are living it and speaking it and repeating it and doing it through action. Uh, I love what you just said about, we're going to give it to you for free. And we just want you to be part of this. And uh, Atlanta United, the soccer team in Atlanta, who they're selling out the football stadium, which for our country is a big deal. And they won the championship last year. They gave away flags. And so the whole city is have, has their flags going around the city. And people just want to be part of something cool and exciting and something bigger than themselves. And that's, that's been going on forever, right? Church was about that, right? Yep. Like creating a community through a church or our local community centers, the YMCA, or whatever it was. Sports teams serve that purpose. We see that with, with sports organizations. So it's cool how intentional you're being with that. I want to go back to you individually. What do you intentionally do to make sure that you're at your best? Because look, I'm sure there are rainy days and there are days where you're down or there are days where you're struggling or there's days where you're like, what am I doing here? Um, what do you do to make sure that you're at your best? 
Yeah, you know, a couple of things. I am an unhealthy version sometimes because I just, I, I, it's a drug for me and I can't get enough. I just want more and more of it. When you take some of the most at-risk settings and you turn them into something and you give them hope and you teach them to love again, like that's an injection for me every day. It, it's unique in education that you could be having the worst day on the planet. And I tell my kids and my staff all the time, you have to choose your attitude. You got to choose your attitude. You got to play and have fun. And they hear me talk about choosing my attitude so more often that if I'm walking in the hallway and I, and I look a little bit grumpy, they're like, yo, Mr. Brewer, you got to choose your attitude. They're so used to hearing me say that stuff. But in my industry, you know, all, there's, so, there's always that one kid that'll pick you up, that one kid that'll turn around a bad day, just like that. So we're really fortunate in terms of that. But at the, at the same time, the one thing that's crazy about education is, is it gets tiresome. Like you put in some crazy hours. Like I got here at seven this morning and I'll be here at eight o'clock tonight. Like there's very few industries where you're putting in the amount of hours that we put in because that's what you do, right? Like you don't just finish teaching during the day, then you head on to the sporting event. You're coaching or you're, you're having to do crowd control and all this other stuff. It never ends. But there, you have to surround yourself with people that lift you up and make you better each day. You got to find your tribe. You got to find that crew of people that you can run with, that you can call, that can keep you straight, that can challenge you, that are going to be relentless with you. You know, I one of my best friends, Andy Jacks, he's a principal here in the area. You know, we wrote on a napkin probably I don't know eight years ago. We wanted to change the game. We wanted to really, really go out and do it. And so he's somebody that challenges me, lifts me up. I can call when it's a downtime and all that. But, you know, we create an environment with our staff that's family. How's, you your, know, how's your sleep? Man, what's that? What do we call that, bro? The greats don't sleep, right? Yeah, no, you know what? I, I'm lucky if I get uh, anywhere from five hours sleep, you know, like I just, my brain doesn't, doesn't turn off, right? It, 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 my biggest problem is I'll wake up at three in the morning and I'll have an idea and that's it. I'm up. I'm done. Like, forget it. Keep rolling. But, um, work out, stay healthy. Um, you know, you gotta, you, you watch your nutrition, you watch all those things. You, you're almost like an athlete, man. You're almost like an athlete when it comes to working out and nutrition and things. But you know, when you create a culture of family that you'll fight for each other, they'll know when you need to pick me up, they'll stand up in front of you and say, I got you on this one. Let's go. And we really create that, that family legacy culture of all in for each other. And that's really game changing. Yeah. Family, you use the word love and you use the word love with your students. How does that play? How does that play in the yeah. schools? Yeah, man. So you know what I do? I get on the announcements every day. A couple of things I do. First thing I tell the kids, if it ain't your business, it ain't your business. Everybody be up in everybody's business, especially at the middle school. And then I get to the next one. I'm like, delete Snapchat because all our problems begin and end on Snapchat. So I'm always telling them to delete that stuff. But the most important message I give the kids each and every day, and I give them a motivational message every day. But the one thing I always tell them, because we may be the first and only person that they hear this from that day, that week, that month, that year. I tell my kids every day, if somebody didn't tell you today that they love you, Mr. Brewer is telling you today that he loves you. And what happened in our schools that we took love out of it? Like what happened in our society and in our schools that all of a sudden it became not really cool or okay to talk about love, to love on our kids. The moment that I see a kid hurt that I can't grab and take in and love on them to lift them back up and reset them is the day I, I have to quit. You know, the undefeated, undisputed champion of the world is love. 
Love has stood the test of time. And so we just, I made that the centerpiece of what we do. We're going to love on our kids, going to love on each other because there's no mountain that we can't move if we start with love. And it beca- it's become, look, I do this other thing. I'm going to tell all the audience listening to us now, pick up your cell phone right now and text the most important person in your phone right now. You love them and see what happens. It's the most amazing experience. I do it all the time when I speak. I do this activity. And this past summer, I did it to a lady. And you know what? She tweeted back at me on, she DM me a message. You know what she said? She said this. She said, I need to thank you for teaching me to love again. I'd been estranged from my daughter for a very long time. And you know who she texts that day? She texts that, she texts her daughter. And they find, they got back together and met in person and reestablished that relationship over that one text. That's the power of love. Imagine what we did if we moved past everything else and made love the centerpiece of the work we do. So awesome. You can also do it with gratitude. Just tell someone that you're grateful and thank you. Um, it's free. It's, it's, it's free. It's, it's powerful. You mentioned earlier, you said, uh, yeah, I'm, I get to do this job and get off the summers. Like I'm in, like, let's do it. The younger version of you. I watched a video of you as the buses were leaving and the school was ending and the kids were crying, which I mean, I remember crying when I was, leaving summer camp and going back to school, but I don't remember crying leaving school for the summer. And, but I want to go to you. What's it like for you when the the school year's over and the kids get on the bus and perhaps you're in the school and the teachers eventually leave and maybe you're, it's you and the janitor. Like I'm miserable. Yeah. What are you like? I'm miserable, man. Schools are the worst place on planet in summer. You know, it's a time of renewal. It's a time of reflection but I'm bored. I'm like a lost puppy dog looking for my kids, looking for someone to tackle, someone to talk to. Like I really struggle in the summer. Uh, the good news is I get to do a lot of speaking, so that helps. But I really struggle during that time. And you put so much work into every single day, making every single day count and every relationship count. And when you do it the way we do it, where you really build just inherently amazing, strong relationships with your kids each and every day, you extend beyond just teaching math, reading, and writing. There's this different sense of community and love together. And uh, you worry about them. I worry about, are they going to eat? Are they going to be safe? Where are they living? Are they going to be cold? Are they, where are they sleeping? What are they going to do with all this idle time? Who are they hanging out with? Where are they going to be? And I just want to bring them all back. I just, you know, I'd, I'd have them every day if I could. But um, no, summer, is a, summer should be a time of reflection, a renewal, a time of planning. Um, but I think that uh, culture and school doesn't take breaks. I think it's an everyday thing. I think you're always pre-planning for the future. You're always refreshing for the future. You're always maintaining that culture every day. You know, the work you do is not just the first week of school. It's not just the last week of school. It's an everyday thing, you know. Culture don't take breaks. We just don't turn it off because it's January and it's cold out. And you know what? We'll wait till the spring comes. It's an everyday thing. You find out who you are in the work that you do each and every day, not just some of the days, but yeah, man, I'm a lost, I'm definitely a lost puppy dog in the summer. When we started this conversation before we were recording, you said, you know, I love working in it. I love getting my hands dirty and being an expert because I see this every day. And I'm sure there have been thoughts about how do you make the biggest impact and can you make the biggest impact by being inside the walls or Go in, you're not that far from DC, right? Go work on, you know, Capitol Hill or do some public policy work or go be a speaker and speak in front of thousands of people professionally. 
Um, as you're thinking about yourself and your legacy, how do you wrestle with the desire and the craving that you clearly have to work inside the school system versus the potential impact that you could make if you went outside of the school yeah. system? Yeah, you know, I, right now I have a really healthy partnership um, with my school division and being able to go speak and use my leave to speak and be here and be present at the same time. It's definitely getting harder and harder and you try to weigh up what is the impact like is it at a point where it's more important for me to reach the masses because it's going to impact more kids um but it also at the end of, but also maintaining your integrity and your character and what you're about right like i just I, i'm if i'm doing it for money it's the wrong reason it's that's not what i'm about it's not what i'm chasing i'm chasing that impact i want to be I want to be this philanthropist that changes the world, that changes the game, not somebody, I'm not trying to be a millionaire on Capitol Hill or whatever, but you know, it's the work that you do it. You want to be remembered for that work. And so I fight that all the time. Uh, there's always going to be one more school that needs to be turned around. Um, the hard thing about turning around schools is it takes time. It doesn't happen in one year. It's a process and you got to build your program over time. Um, so you know, and it's also waiting for the right vehicle, right? The right vehicle in which to share your message. Right now, um, I love sharing my message via Relentless, the doc series and the ability to speak and things like that. And, and it's a great setting. I have my superintendent's license. Maybe one day I become a superintendent. You know, I've tried to um, advocate on Capitol Hill through the National Principals Association. I've done some of that work. Uh, quite frankly, I find it a little frustrating. I think it's too slow. Um, I think there's too many, too much red tape tied to it and not as flexibility for the educators to do the work that they need to do. So, you know, it's knowing where you can have the greatest impact, right? It's knowing that lane, that vehicle that you can have the greatest impact on others. Such a great place for us to uh, wind down. And uh, I would love it if you would just share your social media handles and anything else you, you talked about the doc series coming out, uh, the book. Uh, let us know where we can uh, learn more about the work that you're doing and the school and, and all yeah. that good stuff. Yeah. I got, you know what? It's an exciting time for me. I got a lot of exciting things coming up. Uh, you can find me on Instagram at relentless principal. Um, you can find me on Twitter at brewer HM and Facebook Hamish brewer. I keep live active accounts on all three of those. I have a live uh, uh, account uh, 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 website, hamishbrewer.com. I think I'm very proud. I never thought I'd set out to be an author, but I'm a best-selling author of uh, Relentless, uh, Disrupting the Educational Norm. It's a book that I wrote that um, basically anybody can pick up and read. Um, it's a book that uh, hopefully will challenge and elevate you professionally and personally. And I'm really uh, blown away that I became a best-selling author with that. Like, again, if you thought that this guy that had failed his high school exams would be writing a best-selling book i would have thought you were crazy so i'm super proud of that i'm getting re ready to release and you guys are going to be the first to hear it here um relentless skateboards um relentless skateboard brand is coming out here shortly um and that's all again being driven by the audience my book was driven by the audience um this brand is going to be driven by the and it's all going to be about giving everything back to kids um giving everything straight back to kids and you're going to be uh people ask me to sign skateboards all the time and they want different apparel and things like that and so what i've done is i thought well how can i use this energy to help others and so proceeds and things like that will be going straight back to kids and scholarships for kids and things like that but 
And then also about to uh, Humanity Stoke comes out um, in uh, early spring. Humanity Stoke is a documentary. A guy from Cuba rang me up. The director rang me up. Who rings you from Cuba and asked you to be in a movie? I'm like, are you straight? Like, what's wrong with you? Well, it turns out this was a documentary with the world's greatest uh, skateboarders, surfers, artists, um, musicians, uh, philanthropists from around the world. Um, we've all donated our time and our energy for free to look at people making a difference through these avenues um, with philanthropy. And I'm going to be in a, a documentary with my boyhood hero, Tony Hawk. Now, I know Tony Hawk's not probably going around telling everybody he's going to be in a movie with me, but I sure as hell telling anybody to listen that I'm in a movie with him. But um, So lots of exciting things on the horizon. I continue to make a difference in my school, which is the most important one, and continuing to impact educators and students all around the world. Like I'll never take it for granted. Just so fortunate. Well, Hamish, I think I've done about 150 of these, and you're the first one that's stood for it. And uh, he's, 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 you guys won't see this cause we'll just do the audio, but he's rocking back and forth and standing fired up, bro, man, your, your energy and enthusiasm is, is just refreshing. And uh, I'm excited to see what those skateboards are all about. I, uh, I'm not a skateboarder, but maybe I'll buy one to support what you're up to. And uh, so, you know, put me down for one and uh, just keep doing this work. It's, it's important work. And, you know, there's an old saying like teach a man to fish or, you know, give a man a fish. And I think you're doing both, right? Like you're touching lives every single day and you are creating platforms to try to make an impact uh, in, in a lot of other ways. And I love people that see the world as a world of possibility rather than a world that is just isolated. And so I think you can have everything in this world if you just go toward it and take action toward it. And yeah. you're a living, breathing example of that. I'm on Twitter at Brian Levinson, Instagram, intentional underscore performers. You can listen to all these conversations at intentionalperformers.com. Hamish, man, you are an intentional dude. Uh, I want to come out and visit school and, yeah. and maybe you'll get me on a skateboard with, as long go. as we got some like elbow pads and uh, you know, I don't, kill myself because then my wife would be upset if I have a heart body part when I come home with our kids. But this has been a blast, man. And I'm, yeah, man. I'm just grateful to connect with you and excited to see all the places you continue to go and all the important work that you continue to do. And just thank you. Like uh, I've had a lot of military on this and we often say thank you for their, for your service. And they often don't know how to receive that, but I'll just use that same line with you. Like, thank you for your service. This is, there's no higher, greater, more important work than taking care of our youth. And um, man, I might have to move out to Virginia so my kids can go to your school one day, or, or maybe you can come to Maryland and, you know, we'll accept you. We've got a Maryland, Virginia. It's kind of like Australia, New Zealand. We yeah, have that yeah, it's, it's respect, but it's also, yeah, you know, we don't really cross the, cross the border, but thanks for your time. I know you're busy, so I appreciate it. Much love. I appreciate you. Thank you for listening to intentional performers with Brian Levinson. Here is this week's episode jam. You know, your school becomes the expectation of vocabulary you set for it. You know, I, I refer to my school as a fortress. Who talks about their school as a fortress? I do. You got something to say about my kids? You want to talk about my kids? Talk about my school? Then I'll fight you for my school. Like, that's how far I'm willing to go. Like, how far are you willing to go to be the difference, right? And so the, the other thing is, as you talk about that, you're right. You know, it's that, it's that believing in yourself and it's that uplifting and, 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 and people want to be a part of something special today. Adults in the world today, they just don't want to turn up and go to work anymore for the sake of going to work. 
I believe that people truly want to be a part of something special. And so I think that way when I'm hiring and I'm looking for people that I provide that special opportunity. Like I'll tell you right now, I recruit like a college football coach. Like I'm telling you right now, I recruit like Alabama. I'm going to put my championship rings in front of you and say, mount up, let's go. You want to be a part of something special? Then let's roll.